Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, I just couldn't put this off any longer, but I'm afraid I'm in need of another little hit of McKenna, Abraham, and Sheldrake in one of their trialogues. But I don't want you to get worried now. I'm not going to go on another one of those long series of nothing but trialogues. I just needed a, a little McKenna fix, if you know what I mean. The conversation I'm going to play today was actually recorded on June 8, 1998 at uh, Santa Cruz, California. And in the box of cassette recordings of these trialogues that Ralph Abraham loaned to me for this project, this trialogue was the most recent one. Uh, actually, there were three tapes with that date on them, and they're each about an hour and a half long. So right now I'm going to play the first hour of the first tape, and we'll get to the rest of that tape uh, in another podcast later this week. But since today's program is so long, I'm going to dispense with most of my usual chatter and join you in listening to Terrence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake talk about skepticism and the balkanization of epistemology. Well, what I thought it would be interesting to discuss as part of our new series of trialogues, because I think it's an uh, an issue that more and more people are becoming aware of, uh, is the whole question of uh, skepticism and what I call the balkanization of epistemology. And what I mean by that is that... uh, uh, somehow as a part of the agenda of political correctness it has become uh, not entirely acceptable to criticize or demand uh, substantial evidence or expect people when advancing their speculations to make what used to be called old-fashioned sense and I think this Tolerance of unanchored thought and speculation uh, is uh, confusing the evolutionary progress of discourse. But I'm also aware that uh, if you draw the parameters too tight, the baby goes out with the bathwater, or you become a defender of scientism or some kind of orthodoxy. So in my own Situation. I've been trying to both understand what is strong and uh, to be supported in science and uh, what needs to be criticized and equally to look at the uh, alternatives to science, the counterculture, the new age, and to ask myself what is strong, what serves the evolution of discourse, and what is in fact this type of unanchored thinking that I'm concerned about. Uh, So first, let me talk a little bit about how I see science. If any one of us were to take what is called a scientific approach to many of the phenomena that interest us, uh, psychic pets, the source of the content of the psychedelic experience, etc., etc. If we were to take uh, a hard scientific view of these things, uh, these phenomena which we know exist and which we find rich in implications would simply not be allowed as objects of discourse. They would be ruled out of order. So there's something wrong on one level with scientific, what's called empirical, empiricism, skepticism, positivism, it has different names. Uh, On the other hand, if we go to the other end of the spectrum and are willing to admit the testimony of iridologists, crop circle enthusiasts, victims of alien abduction, those who channel Atlantis, those who suspect undetected planets, those who believe vast alien uh, arcologies dot the plains of 
Mars and so forth. And pro bono, better get that in. <laughs> yes, pro bono proctologists from other star systems <laughs> making unscheduled house calls uh, uh, late at night in our homes. Uh, I mean, both of you realize, I'm sure, that medical professionals, regardless of their species or star system of origin, do not make house calls anymore. Uh, so, I see then this problem. Science is too tight-fisted. It misses much of what is interesting. To abandon uh, uh, the uh, approach of science is to just be without rudder in an ocean of strident claims and counterclaims, many of which are preposterous and certainly not all of which can be true. So. After thinking about this for a while, my approach was to say, well, science went from superstition to its present positivist position through a process of evolution, temporal unfoldment. So, using a method I've advocated in other situations, I conducted the following exercise. I said, I will move backward through the episode the epistemological history of science to the last same moment science knew and then analyze what that consists of and uh, I'm not completed in this process but what I find is that a curious betrayal has occurred in science that with the rise of capitalism and industrialism, science has actually become, uh, has allowed assumptions to be made that betrayed its original intent. And what I mean by that is uh, modern science uh, relies on statistical analysis of data you know, measure 10 times, add the values, divide by 10, this tells you how much rain is falling, how much voltage is flowing through a wire, something like that. Uh, this uh, approach to phenomena mitigates against unusual phenomena. Inevitably, because they are statistically insignificant. That's the phrase that is actually used. So I, we can talk about this in detail. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I think you see my implication that the method of statistical analysis, true, produces general formalizations of nature's mechanisms and wonderful products which can be sold and patented and so forth. But it's a coarse-grained view of nature and what it mitigates against seeing are the very things which feed the progress of science, which is the unassimilated phenomena, the unusual data, the peculiar result of an experiment. So looking at that then, I said, well, where are we in the history of science where this happened and how was it before? And you may wish to correct me a hundred years either way, but I'm very interested in sort of uh, bringing back and reappreciating William of Ockham, who, aside from the things I'm saying about him here, which are very nice, also had a notion uh, not much appreciated of what he called unlimited progress. And it comes very close to novelty theories, belief that the universe progresses unto merging, emerging with the nature of God. But the thing about Occam that bears on all this is, of course, his famous razor, which simply says, and it's been interpreted in many ways, but hypotheses should not be multiplied without necessity. Or, to put it more simply, the simplest explanation of any phenomena should be preferred until found inadequate. Explanation should not be complexified beyond the demands of the problem against which it's being brought to bear. Uh, this uh, so what I'm feeling is if we abandon statistical analysis of nature and realize that probably uh, the 
assumption of temporal invariance that that assumes about the underlying fields of nature is in fact a cheerful assumption untested and unprovable. So we should get rid, in my hypothetical reformation of epistemological dialogue, we should get rid of statistical analysis. We should dial science back to the late medieval period of Occam. And we should do science that way. And applying Occam's razor, we're quickly able to cut away the underbrush that these peripheral and uh, alternative people have brought to the table. Some of it's good. Uh, things like hypnotism, acupuncture, nutrition therapy, uh, rational approaches to telepathy, clairvoyance. None of this is what I have a problem with. I don't have a problem with people proposing new models of nature. What I have a problem with is uh, unanchored eccentric revelations taking their place at the table. The channelings from the Palladians, for example, uh, the Sitchinite reconstruction of the ancient Near Eastern archaeology, the Arguellian distortion of the Mayan accomplishment. Uh, I find these things uh, pernicious and easily dealt with if we use Occam's razor. But when we go too far into statistical analysis of nature, then we begin to cut away at our own uh, uh, beliefs and assumptions about nature. Yours, Rupert, of the, of the morphogenetic field, mine of novelty theory, uh, and there must be some aspect of all this that would threaten you, Ralph, if uh, extremely uh, empiricist and positivist criteria were brought to bear. In other words, we've all been called soft in our hmm. time, but in fact, I think we, our softness indicates a failure of science. Science has hoarded itself to the marketplace and to technology and uh, interesting high-order phenomena like societies, economic crashes, complex system behavior um, is going to remain forever blurred in our understanding as long as we rely on statistical analysis. It's a tool that had its place, but to hold on to it indefinitely is going to retard uh, mathematics' ability to give a, a deeper account of nature. A perfect example of this, uh, and then I'll stop, would be the enshrinement of the so-called uncertainty principle in physics throughout the 20th century, and you know, the supposed great bridge between science and mysticism. Well, it turns out it's just malarkey. There is no uncertainty principle. David Bohm's formulation of the quantum physics gives perfect knowledge of velocity and position without ambiguity. It calls forth the notion of non-locality. That's why the Heisenberg formulation was preferred but again, uh, non-locality accepted permits some of the things we're interested in. Telepathy, information from other worlds arriving via the morphogenetic field, um, and so forth and so on. So uh, I haven't been maybe as rabble-rousing as you expected by naming in turn various heresies to be consigned to the flames but I do think there are too many loose heads in our canoe and that no revolution of human thought that I'm aware of succeeded through uh, fuzzy thinking. Mm. Well, I've certainly got a lot to say about all that. Um, very interesting. I think that the, first of all, we have to see that there's a regional uh, problem here that skepticism and, <coughs> and Occamism and so on occur in different social balances in different parts of the world. You live in Hawaii and visit places like Maui quite frequently. 
um, Ralph lives right here in Santa Cruz, California, where you only have to mention the name to anyone in England who knows California at all, and they immediately say, oh yeah, where all the old hippies hang out. And it's the kind of, it's a totally alternative place. And as we've seen in our joint appearances in Santa Cruz, there's a level of weirdness among some of the theories people have and the crank obsessions they follow, which from outside the perspective of the West Coast, most people would recognize as typically Californian. There's a, there's a kind of level of weirdness and cults and these, I mean, most of the phenomena you've named are phenomena of Hawaii and California. When you live in England, things take on a rather different perspective. There's a general level of popular skepticism, such as that the general tone of an English pub is one of sort of skepticism. And well, that aren't crop circles and Graham Hancock all homegrown British phenomena? They are, but every single one of them in any single pub where it's debated would always have skeptics in the, in the discussion. You're never going to have a kind of thing where you have all believers except in small crank societies of true believers, which exist. But the thing is, the general cultural tone is one of skepticism. And so the need for a great deal more skepticism doesn't feel quite so urgent if you live in London as it does if you live in Hawaii or California. That's my first point. Um, but secondly, I think that the, 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 the scientistic skepticism you talk about is, is indeed a serious threat, and I think that's done more than anything to drive science in this direction. It's a kind of dogmatic skepticism that rules out at any cost weird phenomena like telepathy, non-locality, etc. And so to rule those out, you have to say that a, a lot of phenomena don't really exist, like telepathy and stuff. And, and if non-locality happens, it's just a peculiarity of the details of quantum theory. With no Statistical anomaly gets yes. rid of all problems. So you can, you can take these points of view, um, but the sceptical, those kind of dogmatic sceptics who I find myself confronted with quite often, the sceptical inquirer crowd, who are on my case whenever they can be, because they've classified me with the pro bono proctologists from distant star systems. So the thing is, I've, I've had the experience of being put in that category by sceptics, including the editor of Nature. Um, and there uh, are sceptics in Britain who regularly appear, and good for a quote any time by the press, my old friend Professor Lewis Walcott, at any moment, and to any journalist, several times a year, will say, can't take this kind of thing so seriously. And then last year, when he said, but Professor Walcott, don't you think you should keep an open mind about some of, some of these things? He says, not so open that your brain drops out. <laughs> 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 so that kind of sceptic has done a great deal to force science into this narrow thinking mold. It's forced the investigation of telepathy into more and more ridiculously detailed and unrealistic parapsychology lab experiments, seeking to provide the statistical proof of regularities. However, I've, what I've found is with the staring experiments and with the psychic pet experiments, one can achieve results, positive results, which fit with all this normal statistical thing. They're repeatable, positive. They meet all these statistical criteria. They're not evanescent phenomena like human synchronicities. These are regularities of nature. So the old-style statistical approach can actually take us much further, I think. I'm using old-style statistical methods in my own research because... I don't want to change both the content and the style at the same time. You know, I want to show that by the old methods, these are valid criteria. So uh, by a valid phenomena, they actually happen, and you can prove them in the old-style scientific way. Um, but I do agree that the, the kind of discussion we have in science doesn't need to have all these things. What I like most, and I think my most heroic example in the kind of thing I do is none other than the great late Charles Darwin and like most other biologists I greatly admire him but what I see in him and admire is different from what others admire I like his um, the way he draws on information from non-professionals plant breeders pigeon fanciers horse, horse trainers uh, horse, horse trainers um, cabbage breeders rose 
planters and specialists, horticulturalists. He draws on all these people's experience, colonial explorers, sailors who tell of feral pigs on remote islands and how they've gone wild and so forth. All this is what Darwin draws on and he discusses it in a common sense way. There's no statistical test, chi-squared test, 5% levels of probability. It's wonderful science. It draws on experience and treats it in the light of common sense using rules of evidence, but without rigid uh, statistical tests, rigid methods. And it's wonderful science. He discovered a great deal. He'd never heard of 5% levels of probability. And yet it's great science. So I think that the that there is a possibility to return to a more common sense approach and common sense of the British pub type and probably of standard American kind too will often deal quite satisfactorily with the pro bono proctologists from outer space. Anyone who claimed that in the British pub would be, this would be the butt of a great deal of humour within minutes. And, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, it, let me just say about that, there is a political problem. Uh, you're right, though the British have this reputation in America for being the epitome of politeness. Actually, in a British pub, people are willing to blow the whistle on uh, what they perceive as absurdity. By jokes, yes. always with humor. In the New Age, it is a utterly humorless and the reigning paradigm of political correctness demands that you treat all of these testimonies and bits of news with complete equanimity and it's thought to be rather out of sorts to suggest that anybody uh, shouldn't be taken seriously. The belief is uh, that truth can't be known and so all there is is opinion. So, you know, you speak from your knowledge of the calculus and world history and this person speaks from uh, their latest transmission from fallen Atlantis and this is all placed on an, an equal footing and it's crazy making and it also guarantees the trivialness of the entire enterprise I mean I just don't think any revolution in human history can be made by fluffheads well I think we in order to understand what you're saying I, I have to really try to figure out what a fluffhead is. Yes. I mean, this, this is the crux. I like your um, historical approach as we agree that science is rather in bad place now. We can look back, find where it went wrong, go back there, start over again. This is exactly what fundamentalists do. They say, yeah, our ethics are gone, so we're going to go back to the first speeches of Muhammad or something. So, um, William of Ockham, I, I, I feel uncomfortable with uh, his idea of uh, simplicity. I mean, the modern form is probably Kolmogorov's measure of complexity, which would be given a data set, what is the, the length in bytes of the smallest computer program that can approximate the data set within epsilon or something like that. And a problem with this, technically speaking, is that um, last year's technology would give a Kolmogorov measure of this much. And this year's technology would give a much smaller measure because we've learned a new trick of building models. Or it may only depend upon the computer language, more or less, that's used to build the model. So, in, in other words, that there is no simple measuring stick of simplicity. And given three explanations, we're not sure what is the simplest one. There's no mathematics that could really be applied. It becomes a subjective judgment. And therefore, I think that this whole question where uh, I think that you've suggested a one-dimensional scale of fluffheadness, but then a fluff scale, where down at this end, we have what even um, uh, Walpert thinks is okay. And over at that end, we have the, uh, the the test that can be applied to Pleiadians to see if they're real or not. So in, in this scale, I think you've marked two points. There's the point at which you think to the right of this is too fluffy and to the left is okay. And then there's uh, uh, a, a, another point where 
science agrees it's okay. You see that you're ruling out like the channeling, no, but the telepathy, okay. But Walker says the morphogenetic fields is not okay, but DNA is okay. So I'm thinking of these two points that you described as being on some linear scale mm -hmm. of fluffness. And I'm thinking that this entire scale of fluffness is not, I mean, you'd like to appeal to mathematics and to some kind of real science, that there is a real science that the, the community or the religion of science has gotten off the track of the real science, and that there, this is what bothers me, and I wish that this were true, but I have no faith in it, that there is somewhere in the sky or in the deepest uh, bowels of the earth a measuring stick where we could somehow measure the truth of something, even if it's just a degree of truth, as in, you know, in chaos logic, you don't have true and false, you have a truth is a percentage between zero and a hundred percent, and is only, chaos logic would be a good alternative for you. Um, the truth of a proposition, let's say a formal logic, like Zeno's paradox, is only a temporal assessment and is the input of the measuring stick of truth after which we get another measurement you see so now under what we know so far is 60% true now we assume that it's 60% true that's the input to another assessment when we find out it's 66% true and with that the input of another assessment then it's 64% true hopefully this process of successive judgments which could be regarded as the history of science from the past through William Malachan on into the infinite future would converge on something but uh, in a chaotic logic it doesn't converge because certain kind of propositions which are circular in a way like Zeno's paradox they uh, in circling around they have a chaotic attractor and so they're always giving different results never settles down it gives a dense set of estimates between zero and a hundred percent and from this perspective which is the successor of Aristotelian logic which served science up until the year 1985 or something um, you, you can't have a clear measuring stick of truth and you can't have a clear scale of fluff and so the attempt to make something perfectly clear might be doomed to failure. We understand it then as something psychological. So I just want to give a, I'm, I'm, I'm applying uh, Ludwig Fleck here to you. And uh, Ludwig, Ludwig Fleck is the founder of the sociology of science, where you sort of do Freudian analysis of the scientific community as, is, as a social, as, as a flock of sheep, as it were. And with, uh, like in the 60s, we were, as parents, very uh, libertine with our children. Now we see those children have grown up, and my, my children are having children, and they're, they're like much stricter. And there's the idea that in successive generations, people are more or less strict with their children. And I think they're more or less strict about fluff also. So that the fluff scale is actually a sociological aspect of a given culture or civilization, which fluctuates wildly in time, and I think that this is just one of many theories uh, for you personally, and maybe uh, we are also affected by this, that as we age, and then we are in contact with young people, and then we are receiving input from them, as far as the, the morphogenetic sequence of a fluff scale is concerned, uh, that we're affected by them and we're becoming a little more critical. You see, so then we become critical of ourselves in a way because a decade ago we were more open. So our fluff scale is changing, and therefore we um, have to rearrange all our, our social grid. That some some people that were previously okay are now too fluffy for us. So their brains have fallen out. Well, let me say a couple of things about this. First of all, I think I agree with almost everything you say. Um, on the end of pointing out that its truth is a very difficult thing to assess, you didn't mention Kurt Gödel, 
but certainly his proof that uh, no formal system produces all true statements um, shows that even ordinary arithmetic is subject to debate and represents a kind of circularity. So on one end I completely agree with you that truth is a very complicated concept and why shouldn't it be? It's motivated thinkers since thinking began. Uh, and we're, we as yet have no certain index for it. You mentioned that you thought my approach was one-dimensional and I agreed from your example. Uh, but much of your criticism was, was couched in the vocabulary of symbolic logic, analytical deconstruction. Here's a way we might go at this. Agreeing that it's a messy problem, let's agree that the solution may also be somewhat messy. So, for instance, we perhaps need to talk about kinds of fluff. I immediately identify two kinds of fluff. Uh, one is uh, unscientific speculation, persistent throughout history and with a consistent uh, provenance. I.e. religion. Well, mythology. I wasn't going to attack religion. I was thinking of more marginal ideas, but religion is a good example. I was going to th suggest alchemy. Alchemy believes certain things about matter which science absolutely abhors and rejects. The history of alchemy is far older than the history of science. It has always been in existence. Its thinkers have always evolved and adumbrated their field of concerns. So that's one kind of fluff. Fluff with punch because it has historical continuity. But what are we to make of someone who brings to the idea a complete cosmological model generated in the past ten years by themselves alone. They never read Plato. They know no mathematics. They never read the Bible. They never read Wittgenstein. They just got it all in one download. And it is, uh, on the face of it, preposterous. It's a faith that tells you that vegetables lose their auric fields unless peeled with wooden implements, that uh, major earth changes uh, have already happened but are invisible to most people, that there are only 100 real people alive on the planet anyway, everyone else is a, a simulacrum from another dimension. In other words, preposterous on the face of it, Historyless, idiosyncratic, and utterly unanchored to any body of, of uh, previous human thought, sanctioned or unsanctioned. So the question before us is how do we distinguish all these books from one that superficially might appear to be in that genre, the invisible landscape? How do we make a division between the invisible landscape on the one hand and the rest on the other? Oh, well, I, I, the invisible landscape, the category of the invisible landscape is uh, I Ching commentary. I'm writing one right now. Well, they've been, the I Ching is a legitimate object of speculative discourse has been since pre-Han time. Okay, so let's say we accept a two-dimensional model for fluff, where there's deeper fluff like eating commentaries and more superficial fluff like the entire manifest universe is the circulation of a single electron. Uh, let's use whatever. the Urantia book as an example. So in this case... Or well, the pattern we were given last night as a, a spiral form of the basis of the we have one here. Made of wire. So I think that... Um, I'll give you a point here in that uh, Occam's razor is uh, intuitively a good way to describe this new dimension. The, the simpler and more complicated explanations for an effect which is a matter of fact not established. Um, so th this is my worry about um, the anti 
fluff posture that you now project in public and so on. And so I'm just sympathetic with a lot of things. And we're worried greatly about the pattern. And, and uh, the, 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 the problem with this um, strict parent approach to fluff is <laughs> <laughs> is that some important discoveries may be shuttled aside as Walford uh, shoves aside Rupert's idea of the genetic field uh, what is it that science hates, hates besides Rupert uh, science hates homeopathy uh, acupuncture or alternative medicine altogether science hates uh, cold fusion I mean, there are certain things that say, well, you know, too open-minded, to even think about things, too open-minded, too much in conflict. So a lot of things would have been missed. You think of these paradigm shifts uh, of the past of science, for example, the continental drift, or the ice ages, I can see. I mean, all this, this was a really terrific discovery of mountain climbing guides, of the Ice Age theory that we don't take for granted, rejected by science for 30 or 40 years, and um, is one of the few successful examples of a paradigm shift in science. This scientific community is so I never even thought of it as a paradigm shift. So oh, it's a terrific story. I in great detail in my book, mm. Ask Guy Aros, including a heroic picture of Agassiz mm. and Himself, he was taken into the mountains by these uh, peridons, uh, mountain climbing guide. Said, "Look here at the Jura mountains, the limestone mountains. What are these hunks of granite doing here? They've been brought here from over there, where we know where the granite is." And <coughs> wonderful well, you, you, story. You mentioned thirty or forty years, Ralph. I think one way of thinking about this problem is uh, a some school of fluff should be given a certain amount of time to advance their agenda against very, very messy. Yes. But if after 20, 30, 40 years they've gotten nowhere, they should not lose their place in the discourse or move to the back of the room or something. And I think this should be applied to science as well. For example, science has been beating its breast since 1950 about how they were about to elucidate the mechanism of memory. I think it's time to just pull the plug on this. <laughs> You've had 50 years to flail at this with every tool available and you have zilch to show for it. Similarly, if the good, the flying, the people who believe aliens from other star systems are visiting this planet with great plans for mankind. They've been running that rift since 1947. It's time for them to lower their voices and uh, let other people have uh, something to well, say. Well, maybe a century or two. Why are you so tight? Because if there is no progress. There are other fields have created multiple revolutions no, in the same, same time scale. Progress is is um, very subtle. So while looking for memory and grains in the brain, they didn't find them, but they did figure out how to do a certain kind of surgery so that if you have a um, you know a tumor or something, they can do a really good job of helping you out. So. Well, I would challenge you to make a list of spin-off effects from the New Age that have eased the suffering of mankind. Uh, uh, I mean, there have been a few back scratchers and some nutritional supplements and uh, a mantra or two. But in terms of the money consumed, the lives distorted, the hypola that we've all had to put up with, uh, but we the feel, posturing, we feel nervous about I, I think, okay, if we were the National um, Science Foundation and we'd been funding channelers for years, hoping that they would find gold in South America, I mean, we might withdraw our funding at this point, but we, we, we can't make it illegal somehow mm -hmm. for them to channel. No, no. What so we have to legitimize is critical discussion so that when someone stands up and starts talking about the face on Mars, people behave as they apparently behave in British pubs and just stand up and say, malarkey, mate. And, you know, force people to experience uh, uh, a critical deconstruction of their ideas. 
The face on Mars thing is a perfect example. Here in, what, 76, Voyager sends a low-resolution image. Might be a face. All of these self-promoting so-called ex-NASA scientists. I mean, when I hear the phrase ex-NASA scientist in the New Age, I reach for my revolver. So all of these ex-NASA scientists gather around, proclaim this thing an alien artifact, when the first Mars orbiter fails at orbital injection around Mars, they scream conspiracy. Mankind isn't ready for the truth. Eighteen months later, the second Martian orbiter goes into orbit flawlessly. NASA, responding to the previous hullabaloo, actually moves this site up in its photographic agenda. Uh, photographs it exactly under the conditions these people say it must be photographed on. It's clearly an eroded uh, mesa, part of the Martian landscape, no different from any other. And immediately the face on Mars people scream uh, that the data has been tampered with, that all but kinds the, of terrible things have gone yes. on. One guy sent me email saying, well, it is, there isn't a face on Mars, but there will be in the future. Well, and someone true. else wrote me and said, well, obviously, the aliens wouldn't leave an artifact. The face on Mars is cleverly disguised as an eroded mesa. Well, I agree, but it, I, I'm not sure that it's good to rant against the face on Mars because there's no way by uh, William of Ockham or whatever that you could have ruled out the possibility that there was really a pocket watch on Mars and now in fact they do like there, there's life here and there there's water on the moon there's a pocket watch on Mars there's not a face on Mars but there's something uh, that nobody suspected that was found by going there so my fear is that by drawing the line too tight that many discoveries will be um, missed they'll be missed and that a certain amount of open-mindedness is necessary to um, for novelty to come in and to nourish the evolution of the, of the collective mind and I've got an answer to this a political answer because however much we choose to make criteria or define what we'd have no power whatever to enforce them unless we were on a funding committee of the National Science Foundation or the government or the British Medical Research Council or we were an editor of a prominent journal like Nature or Science and so forth. Under those conditions through controlling grants or through controlling editorial policies of major journals you really shape and influence the science community. You are the ones that draw the line about what papers are published in Nature. I mean, people like Sir John Maddox who opposed my work, declared in public, in an editorial, this work, seemingly scientific by someone with seeming scientific credentials, etc., was actually outside the possible area of rational scientific discourse. So there was a line drawn, uh, 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 put on an index. So there are people who do that, but we're not in those positions, nor are people in those positions very likely to listen to what we say. So the realistic question is how in fact does all this work and, and, and how politically could the system be reformed here I rely on a book by a dissident Cambridge biochemist um, who wrote a book um, called the, the Economic Laws of Scientific Research and his name I forget but I, I remember it but anyway in this book he shows that if you look at the structure of scientific research funding you find that in the 19th century when there was a great deal of scientific creativity and originality in both Britain and America there was um, a great diversity of sources of funding there was very little public money in science, practically none and it came from uh, innovators, companies that needed to do the science in order to make the chemicals and stuff no one was going to tell them or give them they had to do this engineering research, a study of the Adam Smith study of the industrial revolution in Lancashire found that the improvements in spinning jennies and steam-driven machinery came not from experts, not from mathematicians, but it was mostly done by illiterate technicians who were improving the machines that they ran and understood from day to day, the mechanics. And this innovation was mechanic 
new technology came from old technology. Science had nothing to do with it. He shows if you study the history of technology, most of it, most new technologies have arisen in this way. Science was funded by a diversity of bodies and was quite diverse. On the continent, in Germany and France, where they had centrally state-controlled policies in the 19th century, the universities were funded by the state and there was a ministry of science and they had central institutes. It was highly professionalized and institutionalized with professors with great power. In Britain and America at that period, there was actually no science in universities. And now, after the Second World War, the biggest change happened after the Second World War, when people like Vannemar Bush got the idea of a military-industrial complex with big science, huge government funding for defence research, which linked in the universities to a huge government-funded programme of research. And then with the National Science Foundation, this model was extended to medicine. But the primary one is the military research budget, billions and billions of dollars driving research in laboratories, Los Alamos, Lawrence Livermore, and so forth, all around the United States and in the major contracts with universities. Then you have a centralized system of science funding through, uh, we have it in Britain through research councils, central government research councils, which define spending for engineering research, sociology research, medical research, who gets the grants. And these are run by small committees of professors and experts, you know, people like Edward Teller were on these committees. And they decide the science funding, the structure of what's permitted and funded through the whole system of the system. This imposes a kind of monopoly control, a kind of uniformity of thought, which is the enemy of deviant thinking that doesn't fit within that system, however well or badly the lines are drawn, you can't do anything that's not within the centre. The only answer to this, he suggests, because he's an Adam Smith follower, is not to follow Bacon's idea, which is Francis Bacon's vision was central government spending, an academy of scientists, state owned, like a sort of state priesthood of scientists. And then they think of new ideas which then go to the mechanics to turn into new technologies and science fuels this progress. He shows that in fact technology fuels technology. Science hasn't got that much to do with it. If you look at different science spending in different advanced countries, pure science as such has not that much to do with it. But the pure science people have to do it on the centralised funding programme in accordance with defence aims, the war against cancer, AIDS, You know, all the great agendas set by centralized science, molecular biology and biotechnology now taking over the life sciences. The only answer in practice is a free market answer, whether you abolish or greatly reduce central government spending. Science is then paid for in accordance with enough lobby, any interest group that's got enough lobbying power would buy for it. There's a huge organic um, consuming community they'd lobby for money to be spent on organic farming research. The president gets practically nothing because it's not part of the central agricultural research program geared towards Monsanto chemicals and so forth. So if you, in fact, this central monopolistic legacy of the Baconian heritage, which is really what he was Lord Chancellor of England, it's an old-style monarchical church and state top-down hierarchical structure run by a small elite accountable to nobody whose these priorities if, if priorities were set by popular opinion pet research would be top of the biological agenda not the sequencing of more proteins the cloning of more sheep um, to help the biotechnology industry but instead pet research isn't even on the agenda So it's set by a small elite who bear no relation in their interest to the voters in a democracy who actually provide the money. But on the other hand, you would have then the astronomical budget would be entirely spent looking for UFOs. No, it wouldn't, because if you had, you would give, you'd have some kind of funding agency which would give matching grants to organizations. If a UFO organization applies for a grant for UFO research, you'd have a sort of advanced funding agency which could fund this kind of thing. If you had a central funding agency, it would be either have many more subdivisions or sub-offices, or would have a great deal more less hierarchical structure. It would be done on a regional basis, a state basis, anything to allow for quirkiness and deviation and, and multiplicity of decision making. 
but all of these would be answerable if you've got you a grant for your UFO project for five years you've got $50,000 a year for five years or something at the end of the five years you submit a report and this is published in scientific journals which are open to this kind of thing like the Journal of Scientific Exploration it will publish scientific papers on, on the face on Mars but anyone can write in and say why they think this isn't good enough evidence and the debate's there in the journal and you can see both sides of the argument. they do this, they've done the face on Mars then the new evidence, someone then publishes a new picture the new evidence of the face on Mars and the person who wrote the original can, can write a reply but for most people a kind of con new consensus would develop that there isn't much in it well one of the things I've noticed in talking to people about these problems is that pseudoscience is very difficult for most people to discern in other words if you dig into the face on Mars problem you'll find all kinds of articles with pretentious titles about information theory and uh, uh, higher dimensional reconstructions of the data so that before the spacecraft arrived we supposedly had uh, terrain models of what it was going to see based on extrapolation of the early yes. data and well, inevitably these people are all PhDs and they use these technical languages very um, adroitly so uh, you know along with the idea that there should be some kind of historical continuity and I agree diversifying the hierarchical spending patterns would help the other thing is there needs to be some way of, uh, and this has never been done in science because I guess it was never necessary because the collegial atmosphere was self-policing, uh, but there should be a way of looking at the messenger. Well, I'm not very keen on your messenger point because it leads to ad hominem arguments. You see, the, the classic thing you should avoid in proper rational discourse traditionally is ad hominem arguments, attacking the messenger and not the message. And ad hominem attacks, where people who say things that you don't like, they can be destroyed by smear campaigns, like Randy trying to smear Geller, or Geller hitting back by saying Randy's a pederast and a paedophile and a totally dishonest and disreputable character pervert and so on and this kind of ad hominem argument is all too common in practice when Randy attacks Geller on the ad hominem grounds look at the messenger a guy who was on did cheap music hall acts in Israel and stuff and then comes he's just a showman he hits back you see but that's where you get with ad hominem arguments you get Geller and Randy and Randy's supposed to be a rationalist uh, well it's a problem I mean I would like to know these things about someone I was debating but I agree with you it's not a valid point to bring forward but if for example you're dealing with a, a supposed guru but you know that he's done time for fraud embezzlement and auto theft I think that in a debate about his theology that would not be proper to bring forward but on the other hand you certainly would want to know that yes but it, no, it is a, then you, you get the kind of the worst kind of prairie popular press ad hominem attack where anyone in public life immediately they're going to find out if they've got mistresses illegitimate children and blaze this stuff all over the papers that means that people in public life politicians and so on the slightest sexual affair etc now becomes enormous I mean Clinton no one outside America can believe this fascination with whether or not there's no fascination. Seventy-two percent of the people would like to get on with it. You see, exactly. it is but something coup d'état driven by religious maniacs of the extreme. I don't think right. it's a religious mania. I think there's some kind of this kind of ad hominem business. It's the stuff of popular TV, the press, etc., etc. There's too much of it in the modern world. Well, it would mean you don't believe it's capable. I think. Uh, I mean the. 
monopolistic control of the financing of scientific research worldwide is bad and it's important and so on. Nevertheless, the National Science Foundation does rely on the judgment of these uh, peer reviewers and group of experts and so on. Finally, it's their opinions that direct the flow of money and that would also be true if uh, there was no central control and had every industry um, financing its own research. Actually, yes, there is you'd, that. You'd get more opinions. The cat that's food the industry, there are two or three companies that are outstanding for their research on the dietary needs of, of cats and dogs, and they do this research based on funds that are coming in from pet owners and mm. so on. This is the 19th century model. It still yes. exists to a degree. And even in those companies, there's a group of people who are deciding how to spend their money. And maybe they're influenced by the criminal records of some of the researchers and, and so on. But finally, it's the opinion of any, even a person in the street with a dollar to give to the March of Dimes or something. It, it's, uh, it's a question of opinion, and that's where Ludwig Fleck comes in, the sociology of science. These journals are important. What you can publish, what, that's why we don't like censorship. People should at least be able to voice their theory about the face on Mars or whatever, the pattern and so on. So it's, I think, very important who can publish and not publish in, in magazines like Magical Blend. And even if we aren't on uh, committees of the National Science Foundation, if we do speak and give opinions about these magazines and so on, then we're affecting their editorial policies. How do they decide whether to publish these articles or not? The hope that there is some measuring stick of truth that you could be clear-headed, like to use like Aristotelian logic or something, want to be clear-headed, it's very hard to, to distinguish. We do not have a science, as a matter of fact, that allows us to distinguish um, one theory versus another Occam's razor or any other way. We don't have. Finally, we're going to use our intuition, and may, we may take into account arguments uh, ad hominem while um, doing so secretly, of course, and while saying the opposite, we nevertheless consider the gender and, and so on. So I, I, I don't think, th this is what's worried me about things like crop circles, the pattern, and so on. I do not stand up and speak against them because <coughs> I do not trust my own bias against them. It could be true, a new face on Mars could be discovered. A, a channel con containing um, a quartz uh, crystal watch could be found under the left paw of the Sphinx. I mean, I'm not sure that these claims are not true. I think they're not very simple. There's some things that aren't interesting. I don't care if there's face on Mars or not. I do think the age of the Chops Pyramid is, is kind of an interesting question because um, the whole skeleton of history, as Newton wrote a book called the um, chronology of ancient kingdoms amended. I was interested in getting the chronology of the Old Testament into the proper order and, and so on. Well, I think we're all interested in these things. Uh, the thing is not to be led astray by people who have, for whatever reason, a different notion of evidence, a different notion of truth than we do. Well, um, the medical profession, I think that the you know, it's based on good science and so on. Now, I believe in vitamin C. I don't believe in it, but I have, you know, I take vitamin C. I took some today. Ten years ago, my doctor, the best doctor I had, told me that vitamin C was hogwash. It was just like morphogenetic fields to him. Now, he believes in it. What's happened, it took a while to accumulate enough, not evidence, enough convergence of opinion enough consensus, really, that he could have faith in and among the people who are question authority. That's the something that is making the conversation difficult, and it has to do with... I'm sorry to have to cut this off right here, but we're already a little over the one-hour time limit I try to impose on these podcasts. And as I mentioned in the beginning of this program, I'm going to keep my own comments to a minimum and get the rest of this trialogue out to you in the next couple of days. There are uh, only about 30 minutes or so left in this conversation about skepticism, but there are several comments from our fellow Saloners that I think are important, and I don't want to just squeeze them in in a hurry here. So 
I'll get to those comments and the rest of this trilogue, and I'll get them out in a separate podcast as soon as I can. In the time I have left, however, I do want to thank our fellow saloners, Terry, Corey, Patricia, and Adam, all of whom uh, sent in donation in the past couple of weeks. It's uh, incredibly wonderful of you all to do that, and I want you to know that your gifts will reach a lot of people because they're going to be used 100% in support of these podcasts. So uh, many thousands of fellow saloners the world over also thank you for your support of the Psychedelic Salon. Without you guys and uh, the others who have sent in donations to help with equipment and hosting expenses, I might have uh, given up doing this a long time ago. But uh, the fact that so many of you feel so strongly about these podcasts that you send some of your hard-earned cash this way, well, it brings tears to my eyes to know that you care that much. It really does. And uh, I'm also talking about all of you who have told your friends about these podcasts, too. You know, each each week, uh, hundreds of new listeners join us. And it's quite amazing, really, to see how much interest there is in the area of consciousness expansion. I don't know where we're going with these podcasts, but I do know that it's a very enjoyable ride, at least for me. And so, thank all of you for your kind words and support. And in particular, thank you again, Terry, Corey, Patricia, and Adam, who are among the salon's staunchest supporters. Good to know you're here with us in cyberdelic space. And uh, as always, before I go, I should mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. If you have any questions about that, you can click on the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. And if you uh, still have any questions about that or anything else, just send them to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. Thanks again to my good friends Jacques Cordell and Wells, who collectively go by the name Chateau Hayuk, for letting us hear your music here in the salon. And thanks again to Ralph Abraham, not only for participating in these amazing conversations, but who also provided the recordings for me to use in these podcasts. And thank you again to Bruce Damer, who not only made the arrangements for the use of Ralph's tapes, but uh, who also stayed up with me for several nights as we digitized them. So, uh, hey, thanks again, Bruce. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. I'll be back with you soon, but uh, until then, be well, my friends. (laughs) 